Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. This is a podcast designed to provide you with the inspiration, confidence, and strategies for transitioning out of campus-based positions in education toward other opportunities. Hosts Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Studdard pivoted out of campus-based positions and have experienced success by translating our education skills into a new career path. With almost 16,000 downloads across our 35 episodes in our previous seasons, the need is clear and we're back for Season 3. For show notes and information about the podcast, visit pivotingoutofedu.com. Our inboxes are clear that you all need support with your pivot. Therefore, if you're thinking about pursuing an opportunity outside of your campus-based position or know someone who is, check out our website for pivoting resources and our consultation services. If you think this podcast was awesome, please consider giving us a five-star rating. Now, sit back and get ready to be inspired. Hello and welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Jamie Hoffman. And I'm Tom Studdard. And we are here this week with Dr. Cheryl Grant. Cheryl, can you say hello to everyone? Hi, everybody. Nice to meet you all. Yay! Well, it's so excited. I, um, Tom and I were just talking with Cheryl right before we started, and we were geeking out about uh, credentialing and figured we should probably start recording. But you have a fascinating background, and I think what you're doing now, too, is, is fascinating. And, and with that, we'd love to hear um, you share a little bit about yourself and your background in education, and then why did you choose to make a pivot out of a campus-based position? I love this question. It's so nice to have somebody ask something that makes me think in terms of a coherent narrative about my life, which does not feel like I'm sure everybody feels that way. I do not feel like I have a coherent narrative. I would say that um, I probably have. Well, I guess I shouldn't make any assumptions about people who are listening, but I feel like I am more of an education adjacent pivoter. My background, my my master's and my PhD are in information and library science. So I, I was really trying to tunnel through this informal learning, lifelong learning space. I was trying to get through my entire life without ever making anybody have to deal with assessment. And I ended up at Duke University. I'd done some work doing learning experience type of stuff at UNC where I was getting my PhD. And for those of you who are familiar with UNC Chapel Hill, it's just down the road from Duke. So it's not uncommon for people to have um, sort of an uncomfortable leg in each of the schools because they are competitors. Um, But I ended up working at Duke University and I was uh, fully funded um, by a grant. So I was on soft funding. And I was at a very hard charging, forward looking, innovative nonprofit called Haystack. And we were looking at the changing way that people are are learning and teaching online, thinking critically while creating some of those different things. And I just it was no looking back. I just found this incredibly exciting, innovative lane. It was very fast moving. And as you probably both know, higher ed is not. And so it was really just it was like being on a class five rapids and then suddenly getting to a halt on this just almost rock hard surface. Um, So I when my grant ended after 10 years, I just couldn't picture myself in higher ed after having had so many experiences that felt like this might not be the right place for me. I think in retrospect, because those two institutions are so reputation driven, I wonder sometimes if it would be different at a different 
institution of higher ed. I saw that both of you have experience with ASU and, and some of these schools, I think that are not afraid to innovate might've been different, but I am glad that I made the pivot. I, I, so I think it was more of a passive pivot um, in the sense that when my grant ended, I did not go looking for a job at either of those campuses. If they had reached out to me and they had said, we have something really exciting and it's, it's perfect for eccentric people. Maybe I would have, <laughs> Um, but like at the time when I was working on digital credentials, the excitement for them was they were MOOCs. And I, I guess like I felt like that was so yesterday, even though they'd only been around for a couple of years. And I also did have somebody say, well, I won't say which institution, but it was somebody who had innovation in their title and, and said, you know, we our job is to protect the institution from innovation. I just thought that was like a kind of an unbelievable, almost like something you would sort of put in a novel about somebody who's doing the opposite of what their title would do. So I pivoted out and I worked with a startup that in retrospect, I think was probably not ready to hire somebody. They were trying to create a nonprofit kind of do like work in the, the, the social innovation sector. So it was a for-profit platform, software platform, and they were trying to create a nonprofit just to sort of substantiate the the funding that they would receive working in title one schools and so i can never remember is it title nine or title one i always get it mixed up anyway people who are are getting um, free and reduced lunches and i don't think they were quite ready for for an academic uh, with my kind of background i think they needed probably strategic planning and a lot more things that were in place so that was about a year there and then I did consulting for a little while. And now I'm at Badger, a company that does issue digital credentials. It's a, a really nice fit for you um, based on the experience to, to end uh, or to not end, but to be a Badger. It feels like almost like uh, not a coincidence, but a, a sort of a perfect marrying of your skills. There's a couple of things that before I get to sort of diving into what you currently do, there's a couple of things that, that sort of stuck out to me as you were talking one, the coherent life story. I don't think any of us have a coherent life story. Um, I know I don't. If somebody would have told me even you know 10 years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, I would have laughed at them. Um, I tell people all the time that 10 years ago, if somebody would have said Salesforce to me, I would have thought that those were people <laughs> that went out and sold things, not a CRM. So um, the other thing that you talked about really was... Um, you know, picturing yourself in higher ed anymore after sort of being, you know, going through, uh, you know, through the program or uh, not through the program, but finishing sort of the, the grant program that you had and working through UNC and Duke. But it's interesting because I, I feel like we're hearing more and more about that from, from individuals that they can't picture themselves in higher ed beyond what they're currently doing. And, and I'm, I'm curious your take on that because you have this, the experience of, of having that sort of feeling. So many people have said to us, like, I, I, I can't see myself going to that next step. I don't want to be, you know, fill in the blank next position up. And I'm just curious why you think that that's happening because it didn't feel like when I was growing up in higher ed, it always felt like I saw myself in the next role and I saw myself in the next role. And now that doesn't seem to be happening. What do you think is going on there? I think it has to do with the rate of change. And there's such a, I feel with higher ed, and this is obviously not true with all higher ed, because I do see a lot of institutions that we work with, uh, clients of ours that are embracing this. But I feel higher ed is remarkable at preserving what is conservative and conventional and traditional. And there's really great things about that. I mean, you want an institution that is going to be stable and consistent. I think we take it too far a little bit. It feels to me like there's such ennui or I, I don't know what it is. If it's um, what, what is the word for just 
resistance to change at such a profound level that it feels like you, I felt like sometimes coming onto campus, I was entering a different planet a little bit. And some of it honestly felt unforgivable. I, I worked because Haystack was so deeply rooted in, in the humanities. And I, I was coming out of social sciences and a lot of my co- cohort does go into industry. There is a pathway that's very embraced. And obviously information science, there's a lot of interest in innovation and, and cause of innovation. But at Haystack with the humanities people in particular, I felt like it was, um, I don't want to go so far as to say corrupt, but the resistance to professional development, that's changing a little bit, but that's a change management piece just to even offer professional development. So you spend three to five to seven, sometimes longer years, and you don't get any help trying to articulate what your skills are so you can transfer in case you can't find a job in your niche or your field. So it just felt to me like it was becoming too incongruous. And again, it could have been different at a different it's interesting you say that you're seeing that more broadly because it's possible at a different institution, I might've seen a different perspective, but where I was at those two institutions, I think they are so confident in their ability to draw students. I don't think they're suffering enrollment at those two flagship universities. So um, yeah, I think it's the, I mean, the short answer to that is I just think the the, the real world and higher ed are starting to feel like the, the moat between them is getting wider. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I definitely hear you when when you talk about like the different universities. I, I know Jamie and I both worked at at a university that was sort of steeped in tradition in Southern California, and and it was hard to sort of get over sort of the tradition, right? It was always the well, this is the traditional way. This is this these are tradi- you know the the word tradition was thrown out so much that it felt like that was the prohibitive factor in us sort of doing the next thing, whether that was technological, whether that was, you know, social causes, whatever the case may be. So I I thank you for exploring that with me a little bit, because it definitely feels like you're right, that that moat might be getting a little bit, a little bit bigger, you know, as, and and maybe it's even more magnified with the pandemic uh, going on as well. So but let me dive into your current role because, you know, as, as Jamie said on the on the opener, we were sort of geeking out a little bit about what you do, and, and both of us have an interest not only in your profession but specifically in what in what you do. Um, so, for folks who might be interested in going the route that you've gone, can you give us a little bit more detail about your role? You know, what's it like? What's it like on a day to day? And and what would make somebody successful in a role like yours if they were to potentially move into something like that after being on a campus-based position? Sure. I think I have, again, an eccentric role. I am digital. I'm director of digital credentialing strategies at Badger, which is a platform that um, helps people issue badges, um, which are digital credentials or sometimes called micro credentials. And I think if I had to say the two things I do the most, I meet and write. (laughs) Those are probably the two the two things that I do the most is probably very similar for a lot of people. I my role is really bifurcated. I consult, so I work with people who are doing really complex implementations of of digital credentialing systems, which is a pretty new area in these really large scale um, multi institution digital credentialing programs have big change management pieces in them. And I'm also doing a lot of subject matter expertise type of writing, trying to write really to explain what are pretty complicated new behaviors to 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 issue micro credentials is a new human behavior really and that doesn't mean just coming from universities but also uh, coming from from companies that have learning and, and design programs 
So, um, so a lot of consulting and a lot of subject matter expertise, looking over marketing copy and just catching things that can be very easily misconstrued. For example, and this happened right away with digital credentials when we launched this field or built this field in 2010, started it off in 2010, immediately the headlines, the media headlines were about digital badges are going to take down the university degree. So we have spent the last 12 years really trying to disabuse people of that. It's a both and, it's not an either or. And I'm sure there's going to be some institutions that decide to make these big changes in the way they deliver credentials. And it will be because of macro trends and not because of badges. So that's primarily what I do during my my day-to-day work. So can you elaborate a little bit on things that you like and dislike so that folks who might be interested in going into this, I realize it's a little bit nuanced, but sort of the career path, what, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning and what makes you really want to climb back into it? I am absolutely thrilled to find a company that is, that is values driven and mission aligned. I feel and especially in this field with open badges, that's originally what they were called open badges, which was really uh, an initiative. It was funded by the MacArthur foundation and it was innovated by or incubated, I guess, by the Mozilla Foundation, the idea came out of Mozilla, is once those two, because soft funding always goes away, when those organizations went away, it really took a a software company or somebody who had a sustainable driven reason to stay in the field to kind of pick up the pieces. And because it's ecosystem level work, it's, it's systemic work. I mean, on one hand, we are issuing badges, but there's a lot of pieces in the the plumbing that have to all fit together for this to end up becoming say more popular than LinkedIn and resumes for us to get to that next stage. There's a lot of work to do. So I really love working for a company that is, it's sort of like a very organized nonprofit. I'm not sure that you'd ever want to hear me say it that way, but in terms of my experience working with nonprofits, there's always the mission-driven aspect of it. And same thing, even in higher ed, there's the mission-driven aspect, but sometimes I felt like, we are spending so much time on the process. It doesn't feel like we're just kind of, there's just nothing that feels like it's pulling the trigger. Whereas when you work in a software company where there is that language and those processes and that understanding and all of that internal work feels, even though it's a startup company, I feel like everybody is moving in the same direction. And I just love that. It feels to me like this is the right combination of, of mission driven and KPIs, all that, you know, the language of the corporate world that um, it's new to me, but I feel like I'm, I'm designed for it. I fell right into it. That's great. And I think you've, you've highlighted a lot of the things that uh, I know that Tom and I have talked about when it comes to the differences between campus-based positions and corporate, which also play a role in would we, would we go back? And, you know, that's a, a question mark, although I think some days we feel more certain than others. <laughs> but um, one of the things I, I wanted to dig into your, your path is teaching and learning. I love the fact that your goal, you kind of slipped this in, but I want to get the quote right. You said that your goal is to like not have any student ever have to take an assessment. Um, and I just love that because they're just, I work, you know, in the online education space and we often have conversations about how do you know students are cheating if they're, you know, they are online. And I want to be like, why are you even giving a test in the first place? So 
and to anyone listening, you know, the, the, the fact is there's a lot of other ways to understand if students learn something than testing, but a lot of times we jump to that because it's the easiest and what is known, I suppose, the most. So with that, you know, given your background in teaching and learning, wondering if you can tell folks, uh, maybe even faculty members who might be listening, like what advice do you have for them with regard to how to articulate their skills over and what are the most important skills they really need to be successful in like, let's say an ed adjacent role and any skills that they might need to develop if they haven't moved yet, what they can start working on and or what they could expect as being a learning curve. I wish I was doing this podcast in a year because I feel like we'd have more pieces in place because this does align <laughs> with, with my professional work also. I, I feel like we do not do a good job in higher ed, and maybe this is true in the admin side as well, of helping people articulate what their skills are. I, I feel like it's only in doing this work around digital credentials that I started to reflect on it. I saw this organization They're They're still spinning up. Um, it's called essential hyphen skills.org. Uh, begun by a woman, Rajinder Singh, who was originally at new world of work in California for the California community college system. And it's a place where you can go eventually. I don't think they have their content up right now, but eventually you'd be able to go and, do these free training packages to get digital badges where you can say, this is, this is why I am saying that I'm good in collaboration or critical thinking or leadership or empathy or resilience. I can't remember what other um, 21st century skills they have listed there, but I hope that we start to see more of that being offered because what I saw in 2016 was this huge shift towards skills-based hiring. And I don't think everybody's there. And of course, If you're in the research world, you are getting the data, which doesn't necessarily mean it's being actualized. It's not entirely true that you're going to have somebody doing machine learning, looking for 21st century skills on your resume now. That's not, we're not quite there yet, but I do feel like even if you don't have a digital badge for that, or even if you don't have some sort of formal assessment around that to go through that process and articulate for yourself how you have those skills, whether you have those skills. I think we've done a great disservice to students not helping them figure those things out. And I include myself as an adult getting my PhD. I wish I had come out of that recognizing what those 21st century skills are. That though, I think is important for the interview because I think that's a really hard thing to find. You, you know, People, employers say that they want these skills, but they don't put them in sometimes in sort of obtuse ways, they will put them in their their um, job listings and things like that. They all say they're looking for them. Um, but I feel like you can lead with that in an interview for sure and say, you know, all these skills that you're looking for, I've got all of them. And hopefully you would have a digital badge, but we're still trying to get those programs in place so people can sort of cold apply for them. I think, did I answer all the pieces of that question? Yeah, maybe just, you know, is, is as you think about sort of the difference between working in campus-based and non-campus-based position, are there any gaps that you feel like you encountered that, you know, others might need to sort of brush up their skills in and or just you, what you might see others around you notice? Well, I can't say for sure about the platforms that people use or the kinds of things that people are using on campus, because that could be very variable. I will say that if you are somebody who can quickly learn new tools, 
that's going to be very helpful. I feel a little bit like I overthink tools. So I tend to be, I, when I, they let me loosen a new tool, I know I'm going to be the person who uses it in the strangest ways. I will be like the only person who creates like a public board of my thing, you know, <laughs> like monday.com. I got in there and it was like, I broadcast the whole company, what my board was. Um, and somebody had to tell me, so I'm always that person. So if you have those skills, I think that definitely helps with like landing, you know, smoothly and fitting in with people. Um, it's hard to say what skills because it's so industry specific, but it does feel like the more, hard skills that you can throw down on your resume, the more helpful. I do think I wish that I had done this because in some ways, if I had to say that I had an actual skill that I, I learned in my PhD, it would be user experience research. I wish I had done more pursuit of actual use of tools, like learn how to do learner journey mapping, learn how to do um, Adobe. And I, I worked a little bit at that, but I, if you don't have a job perspective for that, sometimes it can feel like you're just throwing things at the wall, but I do wish that I had been a little bit more self, um, self-taught, I guess, with, with some of those things. And I'm doing it right now. I'm, I decided I really want to be able to use data in a much more sophisticated way, not just one way, but, you know, be able to do SQL queries and stuff like that. So I'm doing a professional Google certificate to try and learn those skills. But if you are in a higher ed position and you've got a little time or you have some professional development time that's written into your, your position, I would definitely pick up those kinds of skills that everybody is so grateful when you have them. That's great. I think, you know, it's, uh, the Google certificate resonates with me and that for me, one of the things I discovered, like part of me is like, I wish I would have gotten a master's in business. Um, cause just compared to the people around me who many, you know, we're ed tech. And so you've got people who have come from tech business and education. And so they have the business background. And so there's been, pieces that I've had to pick up, um, along the way, but then I've done a couple of, um, actually LinkedIn learning courses to fill in some other gaps. So that definitely resonates with me. Do you feel though that, I mean, I, my experience is that I just have had so much experience with this. I would, I'll have to listen to your other podcasts in order to get a sense of this, but I feel like so much of it does come down to your networking. I mean, I have looked at job descriptions and I've said, I can do 40% of that. And they're like, but you're the right person for the job. So I feel like it's a little bit, sometimes it's, we have all this tech to help us hire people, but sometimes I feel like everyone's just looking for somebody that they feel is like on the same page with them. I mean, I I'll be honest and say, I think the market right now with regard to the amount of people looking to pivot from campus-based positions is making it really difficult. Like, like positions are exceptionally competitive with that. You know, a lot of companies do offer additional consideration or maybe more consideration to candidates that are referred. And so I, you know, I, I do hear of, and many of our folks on our show have learned about the position from someone they knew. So when I'm meeting with with folks for consultant work through this podcast, I will often tell them, okay, if you work in a campus-based position, list all of the different products you use or companies you've worked with or student information system. But then I'll also even encourage them to look on LinkedIn at 
you know, a lot of them, their network right now are other people who work on campuses, but it's also former students and the former students have gone on to work in businesses. And Tom actually works for the one of his current or not current students. That's weird. Um, former students. And so we'll encourage people to think of it like that. And you don't have to message them and say, can you get me a job? You can just start with saying, do you think that, you know, it's a good place to work? Because that really is number one anyway. So, and I found people who have done that, that I've, you know, I've suggested, you know, a second later, their former students like, yes, and I want to do whatever I can to get you here. Cause they, you know, they've had a really great relationship with them. So definitely does resonate. Although I don't think it was like this two years ago. Hmm, you no, know, we didn't, I didn't get, I maybe saw 50 applicants for a position and now it's like 500. Yeah. I, the folks currently working in campus-based positions, I feel like, are coming in, coming in all directions. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic and, and sort of the, 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 the constraints, restraints, whatever you want to call it, that, that people are under, particularly when it comes to, you know, budget cuts and consolidation of jobs, et cetera. You know, just to sort of piggyback on, on your question there, I, uh, I will, I will say like, I have personally hired a, a huge amount of former higher ed, um, you know, expatriates. Um, and a lot of them are ones that I've known that I've had a personal connection with. And they, they aren't necessarily techies. They aren't necessarily sales, you know, post sales people, which is the environment that I work in, but I know them and I know they can do the job and I can teach them sort of the hard skills. But if they're coming with those skills that you talked about earlier, sort of the teamwork skills, communication, empathy, et cetera, they're going to be fine you know, they, they may take a little bit of extra training to get sort of un, to understand our systems, but I, I needed that too, when I came in. And so, um, and I feel like I've been successful. So, and, and I also feel like the the folks coming from higher ed, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, there's almost a, an eye opener when they take that first job out of a campus-based position to what is out there. Um, and to, I know, I feel like when I've given folks that opportunity, that first opportunity to sort of quote unquote break out, some of them run out, you know, there's a, there's a sense of sort of my personal satisfaction too, of giving them that opportunity to be like, Oh, the eyes can be a little bit more wide open. I, I love when the higher ed folks are successful in this, in this world, because it also shows my leadership team, my executive team, like, hey, higher ed folks can be successful in business if you give them the chance. So, okay, well, we are coming to the close of the show. So I want to wrap it up and give you the opportunity to give us sort of one sentence, big sort of if, if you had the chance to, uh, somebody was coming from a campus-based position, they were looking to pivot either into your organization or, or some other corporate entity, what one line of advice you might give them that would sum up everything that they need to know? I have to say, I hate this advice that I'm about to give you. <laughs> so I think it's good advice, but I myself would, I just hated taking it when people said this to me, but I think informational interviewing, similar Jamie to what you were saying about reaching out to people, I think it's gold. And I think even if you are not looking for a job there, ask them what they do in their position. Do they like where they work? What do they like about what they work? Would they mind giving you 30 minutes just to talk about what it is that they do just to keep gathering that information. And as you go, you're collecting the string of people that are in this network. 
and you never know where it's going to go. So for me, informational interviewing, I did some of that, but I, it makes me so sweaty when I am like taking up somebody's time. So I, I had to really come out of my sort of introverted shell and, and do some of that. And I had to use LinkedIn in a way that I really wasn't comfortable with. So informational interviewing and just, just leave it on the mat, just get out there and have conversations with people and start asking them questions. People love to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm so glad that you uh, you you talked about that. I think that I love it when our guests sort of back up some of the advice that we're, that we give out too. But you know, informational interviewing is where it's at. It's going to make that network even broader for you. Even if somebody doesn't have an opportunity for you right now, they're going to remember that you reached out. And the worst thing that can happen is they just don't respond, and you know, they're lost really, right? Um, so I really appreciate that advice. Thank you for summing it up. So uh, Cheryl, thank you. Uh, it's been amazing having you on the program. I'm really excited for our listeners to get to hear your story and to hear your advice. And I know that it will resonate. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. To all of our listeners out there, make sure that you check the show notes because we'll have some great contact information in there and make sure and stay tuned next week for the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Thank you for listening to Pivoting Out of EDU. For show notes and more information about the podcast and our consultation services, visit pivotingoutofedu.com.